welcome to uh, this panel. We have um, Michael White, CFO of Piedmont Lithium, uh, Cristobal Garcia Huidobro, the chairman, chairman, and CEO, CEO, CEO. <laughs> CEO of Lithium Power International. Uh, we have Emily Hurst, CEO of Luna Lithium, Erez Ichilov, Managing Director of Traxxas Battery Materials, and Howard Margulies, Senior Managing Director and General Counsel of Maxon Capital Advisors, who had a big win last year advising Standard Lithium and Coke. Uh, you could read that, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, so I just gave a presentation and outlined um, a big, hairy, audacious goal for America to have a million tons of lithium production sometime in the next 10 to 15 years and articulated a universe of you know, rock, brine, clay, various jurisdiction assets, so one of which you know, is Piedmont Lithium. Piedmont Lithium has articulated a path to 60,000 tons of lithium hydroxide production with two 30,000 ton projects or hydroxide from spodumene you know, in Carolina and Tennessee. But I don't want to talk about that first. I think we want to talk about the, the nearest term, which is uh, three of the five eyes, if you know the five eyes uh, from a, a political point of view in America, you know, our closest friends and allies are uh, Canada and Australia. In, in North American Lithium, you have an Australian company partnering with an American company, Piedmont, you know, operating in Canada to bring back a mine that was in production in the 1950s, feeding the, the U.S. Uh, nuclear program back then, and then it's been on again, off again, turned on, and, and was recently selling spodumene as, as a few years ago, CATL, the Chinese battery company, you know, for nine months was uh, taking spodumene from this asset. This asset is now fully funded by Piedmont and Sayana and is scheduled to start production, I guess, later next year and generating cash flow from 2024. So could you just talk about, Michael, you're CFO, you joined, I guess, about a year ago. Piedmont has grown from like four to 40 people, you know, in the last kind of 12 to 18 months. Uh, but as you're poised to grow revenues and profitability very substantially, the company is going to grow, you know, a lot more from here. So if you could just talk a little bit about I guess the, those two things, one, you know, joining a company that's in this exponential growth phase, but also specifically like what's happening at North American Lithium uh, to generate that near-term cash flow. Happy to. Thanks for having me, Howard. Uh, with NAL, uh, we have a great partnership with Siona and for a, a great asset and a great location, um, our offtake is 50%. And with a ceiling of $900 on our cost, um, Let's just take our the most recent uh, sale, which was seventy seven hundred dollars or seventy yeah seventy seven hundred for SC six. What nine hundred dollars cap? Um, you know the profit on that for us would be about seven hundred million. And so when we look at something like that, um, and that assumes you know we, we get the full one hundred thirteen thousand tons per year. Um, it's just it's very profitable uh, with margins greater than 80% at EBITDA. So you take a look at that with our market cap of a billion. Um, it's pretty, pretty interesting. You're trading like one to two times 2024 EBITDA. That's right. If it, uh, owning rock in the ground, you know, like Mineral Resources said, you know, Piedmont's God. I, rock in the you nailed it. I want to be, you know, obviously... Uh, um, conservative in some of my views, but it, to me, it's just absolutely an outstanding, outstanding project. And then with that, your other three projects, you know, the market's not giving you much value for, but we could talk about that as, as, as 
as part of um, you know a broader dialogue. So, Cristobal, um, nice to see you again. So you're in Phoenix. Um, you know, lithium power has uh, is in Chile with a very high grade brine that is permitted, um, very advanced, but um, you know your market cap. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's in the 200 250 million dollar range. When I look at that, and I see what um, Rio Tinto paid for a relatively challenged brine in Rincon, you know, over 800 million dollars in Argentina, in a more risky, arguably more risky country <laughs> in Argentina, um, and then you had uh, Ganfeng uh, pay over 950 million dollars for a much earlier stage asset, you know, that was 10 times the value that Plus Petrol paid for the Pastos Grandes asset. You know, I see a private to public, you know, arbitrage here. Um, what are people missing about lithium power um, and, and relative to those? And I would think that uh, in Chile, in some countries, you know, China investment is is like off limits. Like Argentina is not one of those places, but I don't know what the state of play is. And, you know, they allowed Tangxi, you know, to buy, um, you know, the SQM stake. So theoretically, I would think you have interest from Chinese and non-Chinese. So you could have competitive tension if there were ever a bidding war for your company. So... What do you think um, about that? And feel free to talk a little bit about your project, but I'm, I'm assuming some knowledge here already from the audience, which is probably not a great assumption, but um, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too knowledgeable. Uh, and forgive me for just you know, <laughs> focusing on value creation. Oh, it's okay. I think it's a, it's a tricky question. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I actually don't know, you know, you know, why is this difference? Uh, clearly, uh, Chile do have a much more, you know, strict environmental regulation than Argentina today. And that, of course, in terms of expectations for future value, you know, it has a big impact. You know, it's, there is a, even though I, I, I by the way, I do think that the Argentinian government uh, and all the companies there have been doing an amazing job Okay, in five years, they move ahead of us in Chile, uh, way ahead of us in terms of developments, in terms of, you know, investment attraction. Uh, and that is undeniable. And the, 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 the biggest question today is what happened. And I really think that is a reflection of the complications that having this very strict environmental regulation is, is generating for the projects in Chile. We have been developing our project in Maricunga for the last seven years. Today is probably, you know, because of the timing that, that we have invested and the money we have invested on this project is one of the most advanced, you know, real projects in the industry and in the region uh, that have not been built yet. Uh, during that development, three and a half years of that time were exclusively dedicated to be able to get the environmental approval for the project, which we did by the beginning of 2020, just before you know the COVID started. And the COVID, everyone knows the problem that generates it. It, it wasn't a problem of the liquidity in the market. It was a, an issue of the uncertainties that the COVID was generating on the CapEx estimates. And when you have a 650 million US project, CapEx project, 
and you want to at least you know have a 50% leverage through a project financing structure, for example, if you make a mistake on the CapEx estimate, anything will need to be absorbed with new equity. And everyone remembers the story of Namaska Lithium. I think no one wants to be that aggressive, make a mistake on that estimate. You know, have to go to the market and say, hey, we made a mistake and the project will cost us, you know, I don't know, 50% more. And the market is merciless on those situations, you know. So uh, really today, I think that the value of this company were way ahead, uh, you know, in, in the in the structuring, financing structuring process today. We have been working with the Canaccord, which is our lead financial advisor on that for the last months. Uh, we did that because we were receiving a lot of unsolicited approaches from different parties. And uh, we expect to close the equity financing for this project probably by the beginning of uh, the first quarter next year. And uh, at this point, the moment we do that, all those conversations have been done based on the economic value of the asset, not on you know, the value that is being reflected by our market cap, which like Howard said, we also think is undervalued. Uh, it's a good opportunity, by the way, but uh, the moment we are able to announce a binding agreement with that, it will be immediately after reflected on our share price and probably, you know, everything will be level up by, by, by then. Okay, great. I may follow up after talking with the rest of the panelists. Uh, so, Emily, as much as uh, I think you could add some commentary to the Argentine-Chile thing, we're going to focus on the U.S. because uh, that's where you're domiciled here now and uh, advancing an American project in Nevada. Uh, so there was some recent, uh, yesterday it was just in the press, that a, a grant which was uh, given to the Salton Sea, Berkshire Hathaway, I never understood why Berkshire Hathaway you know, Warren Buffett needed to get a grant, right? Of all the people in the space, like you don't need to give money to. Um, but it's he not, was giving. It's not charity, Howard. Those are our tax <laughs> dollars at work. I mean, for return on investment, I would, I would say, a, I would prefer a success story than a charity. I, I'm a my, capitalist over here. So. Okay, but they received a grant, but that grant was rescinded, which we didn't know, like 15 months ago, despite the fact that Berkshire Hathaway was featured, you know, on a panel with Joe Biden in February of this year. So if you could just talk broadly about what's happening in America, you launched a podcast called The Minerals Manhattan Project, which was very much for advocating a lot of what we're, the industrial policy that we're now seeing. Um, but the permitting reform is uh, still kind of outstanding issue. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. First of all, thank you one to one for uh, inviting me to to participate in this great event. Thank you, Howard, for including me on this panel. It's exciting to share this conversation with my lithium colleagues. Um, I think that when one of the driving forces behind my decision to start Luna and my decision to come to the U.S. after a decade in Latin America to drive forward the lithium story and to drive forward the exploration story here in this country is because the opportunities that I saw realized in Argentina in the matter of a decade, I think that when we look at where demand is going over the next decade, two decades, three decades, 
there are multiple opportunities to repeat that. But it also causes me to reflect a bit on, you know, what sentiment was like back in 2015, 2016, 2017, and especially having had a front row seat to the management of both uh, Galaxy and Orocobre, which is now Alchem, which is now, as you've kind of demonstrated, a unicorn. But the the amount of uncertainty that those players had to face, because back in 2015, we were still battling out, are we going to even see EVs or are we going to see hydrogen fuel cell vehicles? And it's made me boil down the concept of risk into two kind of broad categories. There are ifs and then there are whens. And the if is, is this ever going to happen, right? Is this a reality? Are we going to see electric vehicles on the street? Are we going to see lithium batteries in those electric vehicles? Are we still going to see the same kind of lithium batteries in those electric vehicles? Those are if questions. But then there are when questions. And I think that will we see lithium chemical production in the domestic US? Absolutely. I think we should have at this point crossed the boundary where we've made a decision or at least there's enough consensus that there is a when to these questions. But when you look at the the uncertainty that then still is embedded in that question, you've got the technical uncertainties, which I'll, I'll let one of my colleagues who's a little bit more involved in the DLE world or the, when are we going to start seeing lithium chemical production from folks like Standard? When are we going to start seeing them come from folks like Compass? Um, but the, the permitting question kind of ticks and ties with that because as you'll see with the ability to deploy new technology, you have to be able to scale it to see if that's going to work. And in order to try something at scale, you have to have the permits to, to bring it forward. And so the when will all of these things come together is still, I think, very much a soft question or, or up for debate. And I do think that when you look at the idea of permitting in the United States, you can see that it's very clear. A clear preference is kind of demonstrated at least for dollars spent by the federal government. They like stuff already coming out of the ground. So they like trying to put their money on things that are more on the processing side and not projects that they're on the extraction side. That said, I think that the news this week from that grant being pulled and the kind of news that people are starting to stomach that maybe the Salton Sea isn't the um, magic wand for the United States um, predicament when it comes to access to lithium chemicals. I think that the necessity of, you know, putting on your uh, your big boy pants and coming to the table and saying, right, in order to have the processing, we also need to have extraction, and we're not going to be living in a world where stuff coming out of the ground can simply be processed and get the U.S. the lithium chemicals that we need. There aren't enough allies in the world to get the U.S. the lithium chemicals that we need. And so I think that that switch on permitting is going to flip. Uh, exactly how it's going to flip, I would say, is still in the air. And I, I'd be willing to put my uh, my feature or my chip down on that it's going to happen when we have a Republican president and a Republican Congress again. Okay. Well, we may have uh, Congress uh, in a couple of months. We'll see. Um, uh, okay. So Erez at uh, Traxxas, I want to talk about... Um, Namaska. So Traxxas has invested in three 
battery materials um, projects, I guess, alongside Pallinghurst. I guess I'm thinking of um, Traxxas and Pallinghurst. Uh, so anyway, but you're, you're partnered with Pallinghurst. Namaska um, was sold uh, to Livent, right? So you're holding now Livent shares, which um, I think for about $450 million, which uh, I guess was acquired for very little uh, in the bankruptcy. Uh, so why why do you sell, I guess, to Livent or collectively with uh, Pallinghurst? I guess it's there, um, but you're along for the ride. And um, do you plan to uh, reinvest in uh, another lithium project? Um, thank you, first of all, one to one for uh, having me here again. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to participate in your panels, and it's uh, it's good to uh, to be moderated by uh, by a friend and colleague like you. Um, so, um, you know, I find it a little bit funny to um, you know, as as also in this case, uh, investment managers to sort of apologize for a ten x in eighteen months. Uh, you know, it's something that uh, that I wish for uh, for for all my friends and uh, and obviously uh, for myself as well. But uh, more seriously, uh, yes, we uh, as Traxxas, um, we have a uh, sort of a hybrid strategy. Uh, we invest in equity mainly in our partnership with Palinkers, but not exclusively. We also invested in Lifecycle, for example, which is a good example, and we're now um, putting together a project for uh, manganese. Uh, Manganese oxide that basically is the stuff that goes into your uh, into your NMC and uh, and now into your LM uh, FP. Um, so we're you know we're, we're we're broader and in terms of the instruments that we use um, besides equity, we also write pretty big tickets on uh, prepayments and um, we do uh, talk about uh, capex inflation. So we cover the cost overrun facilities. So. The next Namaskas uh, don't need to necessarily go bankrupt. You can pull the money from the uh, from the facility, and it's something that we're seeing more and more now because of this uh, sort of uncertainty. Uh, we did swap our shares um, in uh, in Namaska for live in shares. We're still holding them. The issue is when you're wearing um, sort of a dual cap, you're an investor because we are investors with our uh, with our investors as well. But you're also managing an investment. And it's difficult to uh, to turn to your um, you know to your LPs and say, look, yeah, we uh, we can get a 10x here in 18 months, but we're refraining because we actually want to cut the ribbon on the uh, you know on the plant three four years down the road with all the risks that are associated with uh, with you know with just the passage of time. Um, so the responsible thing to do was, uh, I think, to uh, to capture that, uh, let's call it an exit, and it enables the uh, the investors themselves and us as investors to decide if we want to uh, stick along and to what extent with Livent all the way through, and um, we're we're still there. So um, um, that's that's sort of where where that thing stands, and um, we definitely see ourselves uh, reinvesting in in lithium, and um, both an equity strategy, and I think there's a ton of upstream opportunities, uh, early stage exploration right here in, uh, in North America um, that, that look very, very interesting for reinvesting in, in the next few years. And through our um, um, more um, liquid, soft tiers of investment, where um, you know, we also have a very big uh, structured finance department within Traxxas, and um, I work with them, so it's sort of a um, duo, uh, effort to, uh, to combine the various instruments that allow us to take projects into production with Traxxas, the trading arm, to be the commercial partner. 
and we try to embed them into the planning stage so you don't end up being, you know, building white elephants that some engineer uh, envisioned, but actually finding the need, just marketing 101, tailoring the product to what the market will require, and placing it, you know, in terms of logistic, funding, uh, customer service, et cetera, in the best position that you can. So I guess it's a long answer to, um, to basically say, yes, we're very much committed to lithium and to the lithium supply chain. We're hiring people. Um, we're putting reps now in all our uh, regional offices. So it's, although the pan-Atlantic supply chain that we spoke of uh, as the one where there's a, there's a hole without a W um, is, is definitely an area of focus, but we're also going to, uh, to other areas. Um, so you'll definitely see the name Traxxas uh, deeply involved in lithium uh, in this decade and the, and the one after. Well, very good, because uh, we need uh, a lot more investment. Um, uh, so, Howard, uh, let's turn to you as, a, uh, as an intermediator of um, a significant investment in uh, standard lithium, um, you know, with Coke. And uh, Coke has made another investment in uh, compass minerals. So, you know Coke clearly very well, and you know, I guess, DLE and their strategy. So, if you could talk about that and anything else that you want to uh, say. Thanks, Howard. Uh, thanks, one to one, for having me here. It's always good to be with another lithium bull named Howard in a pink shirt. Uh, so today's the day. Um, on the uh, subject of um, Coke, I think it's probably fair to say that while we don't speak for Coke, we certainly have um, assisted in that transaction, bringing them to the opportunity at Standard Lithium, and there are others that we are also participating with them on. I think as you see sort of the follow the bouncing ball, Coke has put $100 million into Standard Lithium, and addition to, additionally to that, OPD, a subsidiary of Coke, has announced they are doing the final um, feasibility study for a Standard Lithium, leading into an EPC contract that will uh, probably begin sometime next year, mid-next year. Um, then shortly thereafter, we saw an announcement of a quarter billion dollars Coke invested into Compass Minerals, um, also a DLE technology. So in the, in the sort of the... Uh, uh, overall picture, you see they, them focusing on DLE, and I think there's a reason why. And, and, and the reason is, from a fundamental standpoint, their ability to transact in the U.S., and ability to be part of the lithium growth story in the U.S. has to do with being able to get behind companies that can make meaningful increases in production in a particular segment that they understand and that they can be helpful in. And in the DLE side, they definitely can. They are, by, by virtue of their background, their history, their experience, and their investments, a chemical company through and through, throughout all of their investments, you can see the chemistry across every sector. Additionally to that, they like to be part of the critical sort of linkage in the supply chain. And here, in the lithium story, as I think some have pointed out, and you pointed out yourself, Howard, Ability to control the lithium supply chain in the United States is critical for the development of the battery um, materials, for the development of the battery um, manufacturing sector, and for the OEMs to be able to get behind the projections that they've been making. The OEMs are, if you will, the least, um, I think, knowledgeable about the lithium story of, of any of the participants. They've not been able to get their arms around how they're going to make these cars and make these batteries work at the levels they're talking about. And so they're really relying upon us and all of us in the lithium sector to produce as much as we possibly can and deliver it through a means where we're not sending lithium from Argentina to China to the west coast of the U.S. We shouldn't be doing that anymore, and hopefully we won't be. 
And if we can do all that right, we will be able to supply the, the, uh, the battery sector for the U.S. EV um, market. But like you have said also, um, it's a very big leap. And we're talking about growth of 10, 20, 30 times where we are now in a space of 10 to 15 years. So it's going to be a tough sell. It's going to be very hard to get there. And some of the economic fundamentals are helpful and some not so helpful. And happy to get into that uh, conversation as well. Okay. Just to build on that, do you think that uh, we'll see um, Compass hiring um, Coke other subsidiaries to do the EPC work like they did in Standard? You could. Um, I think they'll do a, a thorough review of the market and what they can uh, uh, get in terms of capacity and resources and the ability to execute their projects. But uh, I think it's certainly a group they would naturally turn to and as, as one of their targets for, for doing that. Whether they will select them or not is an open question. But uh, certainly I think you'll, you, you would turn to a group that's already committed to it and has the backing and the financial resources to supply that kind of a, uh, uh, engineering uh, protections and guarantees that you want. How confident do you think they are in both of these projects? Because on the one hand, you see they make an investment of $100 million, and then they pay themselves back right away. It's kind of like a, well, they, a, a, they, ris they, a riskless investment. They, they, they haven't really, because they're, they're, they're not paying them back anywhere near that amount. And they're certainly uh, taking the risk that their project build is going to go right. And so I think they're taking an additional risk, um, sort of like the Callaway brothers have doubled down in the U.S. now where they went from uh, Latin America to the U.S., they, they've said, yeah, we believe in the sector, and we're going to take you know, risky transactions, as, as some might see it, but uh, with, with a good deal of confidence, they're going to be successful. Now, I think it's great what Coke is doing. Um, you know, politically, Coke has uh, a certain profile uh, in America, um, and they have picked states where they're on private land. They don't have to deal with kind of federal regulator regulations and such. I mean, do you see just... Um, like, I don't know, Coke is a very private company, um, pr you know, business-wise, but politically, it, 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 you know, so just with the administration and just the industrial policy that we're implementing, it's, uh, is there anything there? Um, I, I think, for, first on? of all, you have to kind of take a look back and, 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 look, and survey the market. Um, in the last three years, Coke committed to spend $3 billion of Charles Koch's money investing in the energy transition, or they call it the energy transformation sector. And they have spent almost two plus billion already, and they will spend another billion this year at least, and probably get another three billion after this. They've said they understand and they believe in the transition to EVs, and they have committed to it, and they've shown their money where their mouth is. Some who have talked a big game about ESG have yet to put their money where their mouth is. So Coke is is on that basis has definitely proven to be correct in making you know statements that they've gone through and followed through with. Number two, I don't think that politically their issues are this state versus that state. I think they've chosen wisely projects that can get done and built with the least amount of interference from anyone, whether it be state or federal. And certainly they've avoided California, as some might, because you just don't want to be doing business trying to build a project in California, especially if it's a project that's difficult and has technical problems like in Salt and Sea. You, you, the surprise of, of the Berkshire Hathaway announcement to me is no surprise at all. In fact, I, I, I'm, I, I'm surprised it took this long to get out. They couldn't find their way to getting the lithium out of that slop. <laughs> well, well, Compass's partner, Energy Source, seems to have a technology to actually do that in the Salton Sea, and that's been used and just announced um, as uh, the licensee, I guess, uh, for the Compass project. So it works on 
multiple Bryans, but maybe the government was uh, picking the wrong uh, horse, I, potentially. I think I think the Utah Bryans are quite different from the ones in, in Salton Sea. I think you'll find there, there's quite a bit of uh, geological and, and uh, geochemical differences in there. Yeah, it's a horizontal solar like yeah. uh, Atacama to yeah. some degree, yeah. right? And com compasses uh, making potash like SQM. One could argue that compasses like the SQM of uh, America. Um, okay, interesting. So uh, thanks for that, Howard. We hadn't. Um, I've chatted with all these uh, panelists a lot um, in the in the recent past, uh, but not you. So um, I took the opportunity to do it live uh, here. Um, so. I don't know if anyone in the audience has questions. I, you know, just teed up one, one for yeah, each. Just, has one. Okay. just want to jump in with a quick insert on uh, on the Iliad technology that uh, ESM uh, is implementing, hopefully in uh, in in the Salton Sea, and that's the technology, the, the core technology that Compass has selected now, and Schlumberger is actually the uh, technology system integrator, and uh, you know, and the op it's going to be the tech operator for the. Uh, for the for ESM at, at Salton Sea, right. So maybe there is a, some sort of a vote of confidence, and maybe actually uh, Koch will not be paying their themselves to do the service, but actually choose Schlumberger as the uh, as the system integrator for that one as well. Uh, well Schlumberger came first into the lithium sector through a deal called Pure Energy, which we brokered, and uh, they saw that there was a way to get that lithium out of the ground in. Uh, Nevada in a much more efficient way than the previous owners had been able to do. And uh, that's the technology they built and cobbled together piece by piece. It's really a bespoke uh, technology. I wouldn't call it just the plain old Iliad technology. It's, it's, it's quite, uh, quite different. So I, I think you'll, uh, you'll see that project also come to, uh, come to market in the relatively near term. Well, that's interesting. And then we can turn to Emily, because you've been exploring for a brine in Nevada um, that fundamentally eventually would use DLE technology to commercialize. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons the United States, more than its peers, is going to be the home for multiple DLE technologies to get off the ground is that what makes DLE technologies not work is economics. And what makes these DLE technologies fail at scale time and time again is lack of access to energy, lack of access to chemical reagents, and lack of access to infrastructure. And one of the things where the U.S. stands on the shoulders and then the shoulders again of an elephant standing on another elephant, uh, you know, and so on and so forth of its peers is we have access to infrastructure, we have proximity to these new markets where they're building um, cathode materials or where they're building battery manufacturing capability. But more so than anything, we're at sea level, on power lines, on rail in many cases, on highways. And so when you look at the necessity to tweak a process or to add more energy, to add more reagents, or to be able to sort of um, have that kind of flexibility, you aren't talking about building a chemical plant at the end of an infrastructure project like you are in almost any of the cases in Argentina, in any of the cases in Chile. You aren't needing to build the billions of dollars of, of financed infrastructure. You're talking about places in the Western United States where you already had, I think, was it the Build Back Better plan? You already have this United States of American consensus that we need 
more electricity. We need more electricity infrastructure. We need more shipping infrastructure. We have crumbling infrastructure. And so I think that when you look at where these technologies will work and where they will work at scale and where the economics will come together to, to bring them forward is going to be U.S. domestic brines. Um, and whether they are geothermal brines, I think that that's also, I think it's a when, not an if. I think eventually we're going to see lithium chemical production from geothermal brines. I think we're going to see these plants work. I just think it's going to be a, a question is not, you know, if the question is, are they going to go through a Namaska moment before somebody rescues the pieces? Well, I think I think you're right, Emily. I think it is a question of when, although I don't think we've really gotten there quite yet on geothermal. But on regular sort of, you know, uh, uh, subterranean brines, I think we're, we're pretty close there. And just to be a little commercial for, for standards, standards gotten there at a significantly uh, high level of scale for the demo plant in El Dorado. I mean, they've gotten to a, a level of production that's, you know, you can almost... Uh, uh, duplicated into the uh, the final feasibility report and say this is going to work because we know it's working at this kind of, of a level. It is a question though when you look at sort of the the commentary of you know if you don't own the rocks in the ground where there's the question of the economics of a bolt on mineral extraction step to something that's already coming out of the ground. You kind of get into the the kind of flip side of is there something that could happen to the economics of the other side of this that would, I mean, do you own the asset if what you own is the the widget that you bolt on and you're dependent on somebody else bringing this to surface and you're dependent on the resource behaving the same way over, you know, over 30, 40, 50 years? I mean, the... Well, th this this particular resource, for example, in, in, in the smackover, it's been producing, and, and uh, I think everybody here sort of knows the history of the smackover, it's been producing for 70 years uh, all kinds of brine. Uh, and all of this brine has been pregnant with lithium the entire time. That's not how pregnancy works, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it has been... Um, unlocked only with certain kinds of technologies, including the one that Standard has developed on, on DLE. But the technology itself is not dependent on whether so-and-so um, or so-and-so brings the, the, uh, the brine to surface. The brine will come to surface. We have the right to the brine uh, at Standard to be able to deliver but that. Did the economics the of the lithium project justify the extraction? Oh, <laughs> certainly. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. so if they stopped bringing it to surface for other uses? We, we would be able to deliver brine at surface on, on a very economic basis. At current lithium prices, I think uh, no question. Every, everything is economic. No question. Uh, actually, I, I want to turn um, to Cristobal uh, a bit. So there's a DLE um, conversation there. Uh, actually, these two gentlemen over here are kind of plain vanilla rock and, and evaporation ponds. <laughs> um, but you did explore a little bit of DLE and I was at the SQM Investor Day and they put out the Solar Futuro and they talked about, SQM did about uh, some ambiguous, um, you know, big commitment without a lot of detail to using DLE um, in the future. So your thoughts on, on DLE um, and if you could also just uh, comment uh, politically, Chile is a free trade agreement country to the United States. Argentina is not. Um, uh, so to the extent the Build Back Better or the Inflation Reduction Act uh, is prioritizing countries with whom we have free trade agreements, uh, that should position your project um, more favorably, favorably than some of the Argentine Brian projects. 
Okay, <laughs> it's it's an interesting discussion, the, 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 the DLE issue here. But I think Chile, and I think you have to analyze this from the point of view of each country, okay? Uh, DLE, I don't think there is a, any, any magical technology that will solve the problems of the world. What I do think is that the appearance of these new technologies, like for example DLE, uh, will let you exploit certain deposits and certain resources that maybe, you know, years ago without the existence of this technology, you know, you were not, you know, you wouldn't be able to, okay? Now, DLE, it depends on where you use it, the challenges that you will be uh, uh, faced. In the case of Chile, DLE still why you would use DLE in a country like Chile or in a salar, for example, like Maricunga, where you have a, a, an average of a thousand ppms of lithium concentration, where you have favorable, you know, a, a chemical composition in terms of calcium, magnesium, boron, etc. When you already have all the roads built, the transmission line built, so you have access. But in a country in which the use of fresh water, it's a big issue. We, everyone knows, our stage one used traditional technology. That was a decision we took seven years ago when we started developing the project. It's not something you can change from one day to another because your environmental permit actually depends on what technology you will use, okay? Uh, however, in the case of the stage one, we will be using around eight to 10 liters per second of fresh water to produce 16,000 tons of lithium carbonate every year for 20 years. We started working with uh, Mitsui, which, you know, it's a public domain that we have an agreement with them two years ago on the development and testing of this DLE technology. Each brine is different. Each brine, you know, will need a, a specific development for each technology. You know, you can't use the plant from Atacama in Maricunga because it's not going to work, just because the brines are a little bit different. We started working with them and using exclusively Maricunga brine. Uh, we built a pilot plant in Tokyo. It was tested last year. Results were very encouraging, really, from, a, from an engineering point of view. However, the amount of water that will be needed to produce exactly the same amount of lithium carbonate is around five times the amount of water that we will need using our technology. We said, okay, there is no doubt this is going to be a technology that will be used we will continue working on the testing and we will continue working on the reinjection. Reinjection is something that everyone thinks is as easy as pumping brine out of the salar. It's not. But not because from an engineering point of view you can do it. No, 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 that's not the point. You can. Okay? It will be expensive, but you can. The problem is that you will be reinjecting something that is actually different 
to what you pumped out. And from an environmental point of view, when you have a very strict environmental regulation, that is a big issue. You will have to work on that, and that means time. It's not that it's not going to be used. It needs more time, at least in Chile. So your neighbor in um, Argentina, uh, Minera XR, Lithium Americas, and Ganfang is, uh, is in year 13. Um, so <laughs> they, they hope to be producing um, next year uh, tr conventional evaporation ponds uh, similar to Olaraz. And uh, so every brine's different. And, um, you know, the sustainability aspect of um, various uh, methodologies, uh, you know, you need to be careful in, in, in everyone's, um, you know, DLE is not always more sustainable. Uh, evaporation ponds, you know, and, and conventional technologies. Uh, can be very sustainable as well. And uh, hard rock, you know, just conventional mining. So let's uh, talk to Michael again. Uh, you have um, assets um, in three locations. Uh, collectively, you have access to 500,000 tons of spodumene per year. Uh, in Ghana, in uh, Quebec, we talked about, and also the flagship in North Carolina. Uh, but you also did a life cycle analysis uh, um, last year, uh, which demonstrated that you could be um, uh, just a hard rock, conventional hard rock, the way that you put together the Carolina Lithium project, um, lower uh, in, I forget exactly, there's water, there's land, and there's um, this carbon footprint uh, score extremely high from a life cycle, life cycle assessment. So, so that any kind of perception that like tr conventional hard rock mining uh, is somehow, you know, unsustainable, uh, that's incorrect. Uh, and is also the major area of growth um, in lithium units that have come to market over the years. So uh, there's, I uh, forget who, mining.com I think has put out, you know, a recent graphic uh, this week, which kind of shows uh, how lithium production has grown, you know, by country. And, and it, it shows very much how Australia has grown enormously. The five mines have come on stream, conventional, spodumene, it's the you talk about five to eight years, you know, Pilbara has gone from, you know, zero to nearly 10 billion or probably more than 10 billion U.S. market cap in five years uh, from a discovery to, um, you know, a major spodumene supplier. So um, Piedmont in North Carolina is not on federal land. It's it's local um, land. Uh, and there have been some, you know, headlines uh, from last year. Uh, th th there's a it's a very aggressive, you know, in America, um, you know, politics and, and, and the press that, that you know, anti-mining sentiment kind of, you know, make things appear kind of worse, you know, than they are. But you, you just had a couple of events where Senator Tillis, you know, in Carolina, and then also you opened up, um, you, you know, in Tennessee, the plants which show very significant uh, local support at the highest levels of government uh, for your two um, you know, hydroxide plants, you know, and in Tom Tillis's case, you know, has been talking about since 2018, you know, he's been aware of the project, has been supporting the project, right, and it's going through the state mining process. But if you could just talk, like, within the context of, you know, Coke is there in various states and bringing things on, um, it, you know, your perception, you know, based in North Carolina um, <coughs> of, uh, you know, the timing of, you know, Carolina is now the fourth project, right? right? You know, right. <laughs> uh, but, and Tennessee is even sooner than that, likely going to take Ghana, you know, feed. But if you just talk about, I guess, Tennessee, Carolina, but also Ghana a bit and sure. political considerations, 
permitting considerations there uh, because you know the market's counting on lithium units to kind of come on stream within a reasonable timely manner and um, and you know Piedmont's been in existence yeah. you know only five years so you know just happy to so um, spoke just briefly on North American lithium which will come online next year and expect full nameplate in in 2024. Um, but really, the the remaining three projects. The other one is Ghana. It's a it's a wonderful resource on the coast, um, about seventy miles away from port, a, a very deep uh, water port, um, hydroelectricity highway from the mine site um, to the port. And so, um, you know, the ability. You know, when we think of Africa, obviously that can be a very prohibitive area unless folks are willing to really understand. And with our project there, it's going to be a fairly, so to speak, simple process to take that from mine over to the U.S. and process that. Um, we expect Ghana to come online in 2024, and then our plant in Tennessee to come online, our, um, our conversion plant um, to come online in 2025. Um, Tennessee is a, is a wonderful pro-business state. Um, we had a, um, a grand opening, a, a welcoming, um, just recently and, uh, full support. Um, it's already zoned for industrial. And so we'll be able to, um, produce 30,000 tons of lithium hydroxide there in Tennessee. And then, um, our fourth project to come online is, is Carolina lithium. And, um, we're seeing, um, some tailwinds pick up on that. Um, we expect to be permitted next year. Um, we did get a wonderful, um, a wonderful boost of support from Senator Tom Tillis, um, who is very focused on um, U.S. Um, not having a dependency on a foreign nation or um, a non-alliation to um, to be part of that lithium supply chain. Um, and so it's you know I go back to a fully funded project in NAL, and um, so that will generate significant cash flow not only for um, Piedmont in a certain project, but for us to be able to use that in a way that um, we can bring our focus is bringing the um, first to produce, first to bring cash flow projects on first, and so we'll be able to allocate that capital. Um, one thing I'd also like to highlight is the fact that Piedmont Lithium redomiciling from Australia to the U.S., um, there are, as you know, very few um, U.S., Based public companies um, that are in the lithium space, and so that are um, producing hard rock lithium, and so within the United States, and so with that, um, we you know went through a, a process to um, ensure that we had a very good governance um, process, a good board, um, a list of A team players on the management team, and as you mentioned, building from forty. I'm sorry, from four people to 40, um, we did that very strategically. Uh, we did that with key players, um, A players, and um, very, very strong company. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So you, the, the domicile, uh, just for anyone who doesn't know, there's a lot of like Australian companies or Canadian companies, even Standard Lithium is still a Canadian company, but it is fully listed kind of on NASDAQ. But oh, NYSE. Uh, um, so, but but Piedmont is first and foremost just a U.S. company, which enables it to be in indexes like the Russell 2000 or Russell 3000, which it is in, which doesn't apply um, 
to the other foreign companies that are that are listed there. And another important point, you said you could use cash flows from kind of like North American lithium to fund you know business elsewhere. That's not always the case with an Argentine project, for example, where the funds need to be reinvested in Argentina. They can't be expatriated to fund you know projects elsewhere. You're shaking your head that I may be wrong about that analysis. It's not that they have to be reinvested. It's just that once you, if you sell, if you export anything from Argentina, you have 30 days to bring that money back through the central bank at the official exchange rate, at which point in time you are holding pesos in Argentina. You can choose to reinvest them in Argentina or you can choose to do whatever you want with them, but you do have to repatriate the dollars. It's a currency control. Okay. It's, 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 it's harder. I, I, I don't fully understand the mechanics of currency control countries, but it's, it's harder. It's, it's, it's so currency control is usually to keep <laughs> currency in. Right. This is a specific, if you export something, you have to repatriate it through the central bank into pesos. You can then take it out of the country and that's where you run into the currency controls. But this would, I would call it a, like a, a pre-currency control. Okay. Are there any questions in the audience that uh, anyone would like to ask any of the panelists? Don't be shy. Lithium, knowledgeable. Okay. Any of you uh, want to ask each other any questions? Mike, I have a question for you. Um, we've done some business in Ghana and found it to be a very um, stable and uh, responsible um, both national and local government uh, structure building projects. I'm hoping you've had that same experience with yours because it's it, it's it's really quite different from other parts of Africa where you have some difficulties in, in sort of navigating the, the uh, administration and the uh, various factions. Yeah, I, I want to validate that. We have had an extremely favorable, um, not only a welcoming, but it our, our observations, it is a very stable place to do business. Um, I'm glad that it does have infrastructure um, to support something of the project that we have there. Um, again, a Africa has that, you know, uh, you know, you start getting into credit concerns and this and that. And but Ghana is is one of those gems where you know, especially being on the the west coast, um, it fits into our strategy. Um, and when we look at assets, um, that's a key thing. But Ghana plays right into that. We're about to start a refinery there, so uh, yeah, I know, I know the, the drill. It's been quite quite helpful. Very pleased. Just one thing, and Emily, just uh, so Twitter's uh, headquarters are in uh, Ghana, the African headquarters. So Jack, when he wanted to take his sabbatical for a year, it was actually in Ghana. So now with uh, Twitter uh, owned by uh, Elon Musk, um, he has another reason to be uh, happy with Piedmont. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I, my question is actually about the what's it been like uh, recruiting technical talent to build a hydroxide conversion facility, given that it's the first of its kind in the U.S. Uh, it's limited. Um, we have, um, being that we're headquartered in uh, in a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, in Belmont, um, it's we're strategically located there. Um, obviously, with the the um, Carolina Tent Spodumene Belt. Um, there are companies that are lithium-based, obviously, there in that region, and um, from a mining perspective, um, but also it's becoming the hub for the supply chain um, in the United States from batteries, OEMs, et cetera, really focusing in on that southeastern part of the U.S. Um, but I think um, talent 
is and will continue to be um, in short supply um, from a technical perspective. Um, but fortunately at Piedmont Lithium, we've, we've been able to assemble a very qualified team from whether it's um, on the, the conversion side, uh, whether it's on the in building that, whether it's on the um, safety, Everyone environmental health perspective. Everyone from Albemarle ends up at Piedmont at some well, point or the other. You know, I, so I won't, you know, um, mention, you know, go to specific competitors and so forth, but, um, but it's not uncommon to see folks move around. There's 15,000 tons of uh, lithium chemicals produced in America, and they're all produced in North Carolina. And North Carolina is the ex-China hydroxide leader, right? Pretty much. So everywhere in the world, it's going to—it's hard to find talent for um, making lithium chemicals. Uh, in Piedmont's instance, I guess they have closest proximity to people who have those. Mm -hmm have those skills. But what's interesting is, uh, yeah, it takes five to eight years or 13 years, whatever, to build mines. Um, we just interviewed Patrick Brindle, the chief operating officer. He's been building and working in lithium. Like, he's a coal guy, right? Who He's now one of the more experienced people in lithium, right? So this industry does need to attract a lot more people. If I could um, stand on a, a soapbox that uh, Emily often stands on, uh, is just to... Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk in America, uh, you know, about manufacturing and processing and, and clean energy, you know, but there's never any talk or if it is always negative talk about like mining, like or chemical industry jobs. So like the processing and mining, these are good Joe Biden like blue collar jobs, right? They can be union jobs, right? They tend to be, you know, there's some of them are swing states, right? There's a toss up, you know, kind of Senate seat, you know, in in North Carolina, right, and in Nevada. Like, I would think that this would be a winning issue, right, for average Joe, regular Joe Biden to be supporting minors, right, you know, and 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 chemical producers and the, the people who are going to build this industry in America. This is the middle out, as he talks about it. So I'm trying to figure out how do you go from, you know, loving Tonka toys, right, you know, at, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a child, you know, a 10-year-old, you know, to Minecraft's the, like, most popular video game, or one of the most popular video games. You know, Bill Gates, you know, owns the Xbox, right? Like, so how, how do you love, go from mining, my sons, right? You know, I, I hear them, I overhear them. It's, it's coal, it's iron ore, it's, you know, they're, they're digging, they're playing. And how do you go from that to, like, you know, them becoming anti-mining when you're in your 20s, right? And camping out, you know, in tents in Nevada. Mike, anyway. you need a Super Bowl uh, advertisement in your budget, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, good thing our CEO isn't here here to hear that. Um, you know, coming back to talent, I mean, it's it's all throughout being that we're talking about not only the um, the asset, but then the um, uh, the the concentrator can you know the conversion. Um, and folks know uh, Patrick Brindle, our chief operating officer, very well in this industry, and um, he just brought on um, a right hand for um, our capital projects, which we. You know Tennessee, um, you know our partnership in in Quebec, Ghana, and so um, and the gentleman he brought on had has twenty years of experience from Rio Tinto. So we're very fortunate to be able to attract talent. But specific conversion in the U.S., um, I think it's it is. But we've been very fortunate. He went to the same school as my partner Rodney Hooper, who is going to have the uh, privilege to uh, meet him next week when we go down 
to revisit Carolina and your new headquarters. Uh, we have three minutes left. Last chance for anyone in the audience to ask a question. Tolga Kumova. One of your slides, I don't know if you can go it back to it. No. In the video, we could put it up, though. <laughs> you were mentioning that asset values of the equity values, I'm talking about markets, but you said they're all priced for $16,000 or thereabouts in terms of the, uh, on this page. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's the, that, that's the page of that's the page of historic multiples. You're just talking about in general, just the equity prices of the. Uh, yeah, I was saying that the the multiples have gone down. You know, I was forecasting, you know, ninety to one hundred and thirty-eight billion of overall equity market value based on, like a sixteen dollar, price sixteen thousand dollar price, assuming that the market would give a twelve to fifteen times multiple to the earnings that you would get from that $16,000 price. Um, I'm just thinking about the differential of what it actually is in terms of the analyst notes that you read and the, what they actually use to value the equity companies. And it's a massive gap. But there's no one who has like a long-term, long, long-term forecast, like higher than $16,000 or $20,000. I, th I think the long-term most analysts have like, 1,500 spodumene, 12 to 1,500 spodumene, and like 15,000 tons carbon and hydroxide, maybe up to up to 20,000, but even there, I don't think so. I mean, my partner Rodney believes there's no way it's going lower than 20. And Joe Lowry, we just did podcast, likewise thinks there's no way it's going below 20. And it doesn't make sense if you, you, you forecast deficits as far as the eye can see to 2030, but then you're forecasting, you know, prices to fall, you know, back to, um, you know, below the marginal cost producer. And if you go back to the other chart, if you could flip through the uh, the, the the Rock God chart, so the Rock God Spodumene software. So this is if you're in that blue area, right? Those are non-integrated converters, right? These are these are Chinese converters that don't have their own rock, spodumene. They have to go on market to compete and buy for very scarce tons. And that's why spodumene prices have risen from $500 to $7,700 in the last 18 months. Now, why, if your mineral resources, are you going to suddenly sell and drop your price well, you, you, there's this huge demand. Your cathode company, your battery company, your EV company are desperate for it. Howard, these guys haven't got it right in oil, and they haven't got it right in lithium. That's the bottom line. These analysts, they just haven't got it right. They just it, it, like why is iron ore forwards are always you know uh, in backwardation, but iron ore has had software margins for many, many, many years. So there's just this is a very rapidly growing from a very small base industry and. There are 15 people in this room, okay? You know, when there are 100 people in this room in four years' time, we'll be at that Rio Alchem moment. So when Rio buys Albemarle, okay, for $100, $150 billion, okay, that's when you should be selling your lithium juniors, okay? That's going to be two, so we're, we're in 2003, right? You know, it's just, we're in 2002, it's 2022, it's exactly the same. You know, ten years ago. So ten years ago or twenty years ago. 20. Um, you know, by by twenty twenty eight, okay, um, or sooner. 
uh, you're going to have this parabolic rise. And that's why even on this scoreboard, these are lithium unicorns. Uh, I don't have, I think, my much longer list uh, here. But, you know, th this list beneath 688 million market cap for Vulcan Energy are another 70 companies, you know, that range, you know, from 5 million to, you know, 650 million. And a lot of those companies are going to grow. Uh, Tolga is associated with one that out of nowhere went from nowhere to $450 million or so uh, in Canada, just making a huge discovery. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity in companies like Emily, com companies like Piedmont, okay? Piedmont is now 961 million market cap. I've been keeping these scoreboards for the past five years. I was looking at it when I first came here. Um, I didn't put up that slide. It was used to be called WCP Resources. It backed into a shell with, you know, $5 million. It had, you know, an eight cent stock, you know, and it's now a dollar stock, you know, in, in Australia and $53, um, you know, converted here, you know, in the U.S. So anyway, there's a lot of opportunity. So these companies that are a billion, right, like Piedmont, there's no reason Piedmont, there's no reason, you know, lithium power can't grow from 250 to a billion, you know, or more. There's no reason Piedmont, which is trading at two times 2024 EBITDA, if you believe they're going to produce 113,000 tons of spodumene, you know, at, at 7,000 and make $6,000 margin. Um, so there's a discount. There's no reason that Piedmont won't follow in Sigma to $2.7 billion. There's no reason that Sigma won't follow, you know, how uh, Pilbara and, and Allchem have grown. Um, so my question follows on is, what is a realistic price that an analyst should use? Putting Goldman's actual report aside, <laughs> taking them out of the equation, what should a realistic I mean, 16,000, 15,000 sounds not realistic. 18 over a 15 year. You could do that, okay? But who has, an, who has a 10 year, 15 year time frame, right? Seriously, like any analyst, you know, you're going to look at 2024, 25, 20, if you're like building a major project, if you're Coke or if you, Coke is throwing R&D dollars, $350 million is, you know, it's still an R&D expense for them. They're, they're, that's like, you need a lot more of that. I mean, hats off to them, but you need billions. I mean, um, Rio Tinto, again, bought a challenge project, you know, for $850 million. That was 4% of their first half EBITDA, right? So it's, it, these aren't big numbers in the overall scheme of things, but my partner Rodney estimated when GM and Liven did their prepay deal, Okay, he estimated, we don't know this for a fact, but he thought that there was probably a floor ceiling in 25 to $35 range that was acceptable for Livent to accept in order to get, you know, these are hydroxide tons, hydroxide's very hard to make, and they want long-term stability. So that's a ballpark estimate. And that was like a six-year, I think, deal um, that starts in like 2025. So I think that's a reasonable you know, floor ceiling that a real strategic with a real OEM is signing, but it, there's so much opacity in this market. Like every everything is secretive. You know, every deal is bespoke, and you know it, it's going to be very interesting to see as you know Piedmont goes through a process, as Lithium Americas goes through a process, as that, like the 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 bargaining power. The, the more we wait, the, the 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 stronger the hand of these miners. 
However, the market doesn't fully reflect this yet because we're in, someone told me the IPO market, like a 25-year-old veteran on Wall Street told me like he hasn't seen pessimism this bad in his career. Like IPOs have dried up completely. Like we forget, like I'm really bullish. My portfolio is up this year, right? Because I'm heavily exposed to lithium. But the real world out there is, is down hard. And this is a risk on, like, you know, the, the, the leverage, again, the super cycle, you have your retracements, you know, but um, commodity equities follow commodity prices. There's no reason for lithium prices to come crashing down. The market hasn't come to accept that. Once the market comes to kind of accept that, the, the tailwinds behind this thematic are so strong from an ESG perspective, from a government. America is industrial policy. Like what Biden has done has been a huge surprise. COVID was a huge surprise. The war in Ukraine, you know, just further reflects, you know, the need for localized supply chains. So, you know, eventually Europe will get its act together. You know, they're very slow and they have thousands of decision makers to kind of get anything done and they're distracted by natural gas, et cetera, but they were ahead, you know, of America. America's now kind of gone ahead of them, but um, lithium is irreplaceable, right? There's nothing, the, the installed sunk cost in this industry is so great. You may, you may be able to displace nickel or cobalt and go LFP, whatever, but lithium's needed everywhere um, for as long as the eye can, as far as the eye can see. So Brilliant. I encourage everybody, right? Like one-to-one, -one, this is like largely a gold conference, like, like, Again, this is a tell. There's not a lot of people here, okay? This room will be filled in a couple of years, okay? And, uh, and um, you know, so there's a lot more to go, and these valuations are, are still cheap. Go ahead, yeah, Erez. Atlantic, though, to, uh, to complete your narrative here, in 2000, early 2017, I was um, sitting with a friend who was lithium bullish, and we were talking about adoption rates of, uh, of EVs and uh, multiplying the tons by the cars and the whole thing. And um, I was a little bit of a devil's advocate because he was very, very bullish and I was kind of uh, cross-examining him a little bit. And then suddenly he got on a call on his, um, whatever it was, then iPhone 4 or 5 or whatever we had in 2016-17. And uh, so he answered, said, excuse me for a minute, answered the phone. And I was kind of looking at him and everyone else in that, uh, in that area was, you know, on the, um, and he finished his call, he kind of raises his eyes to me and says, well, but what about if it ends, what if it, if it ends up like, like the phones, if that's what's going to happen, if this is going to be the adoption rate and the adoption, uh, you know, and the adoption scale and scope. And at that point we had, I don't know, whatever, 500,000, uh, you know, hybrids more or less out of a hundred million, uh, uh, you know, um, Annual, uh, you know, annual sales of, uh, of light utility and then passenger vehicles and, you know, into the vision. But he was absolutely right. Uh, at this point, uh, the supply side is the issue. Uh, consumer the demand, 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 consumer demand. Switch back. No, there's no People don't go EVs. Right. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the people. It, it's the OEMs, though. They can't switch back. Once, once they've tooled, they can't, re they can't go back. Right. That's it. And they're committed. Tennessee, Ford, you know, California. No, no. But we have to get out of our echo chambers and into the real world because if we continue to discuss this with people who agree with us, <laughs> it's going to take an extra year. All right. Super Bowl advertising. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. I, <laughs>
I, I, should that be done at the Piedmont level or should that be done at like, you know, um, an, an association yeah. industry okay. level? The, yeah. the Rockstock Channel level, Howard. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. I see we're at zero five minutes ago. So, um, you know, that's fine. Um, thank you one-to-one -one and Adam and team for having me and this uh, great panel to uh, talk lithium. And uh, hopefully it won't be another five years before uh, I do it again.